Edutainment Learning is powered by Academica Virtual Education and Collegia TV. For more information, visit www.edutainmentlearning.com. My name is Ben Lesser, and I am a Holocaust survivor. I was born in Krakow, Poland, to a wonderful family of 12. Okay, you can see um, part of it. My father, my mother, my oldest brother, Morris, and uh, my sister, Lola. And there is my sister, Goldie, my oldest sister. Um, let me let me change, fix this. All right. I am in the middle. My little brother, Tuli, is in the right. So out of all these people in the pictures that you see out of the seven of us, only two of us survived, Lola and I. The rest of them were all slaughtered by the Nazis. And in Krakow, we had a beautiful life. My father had two businesses. He had the wine and syrup manufacturing, and he also had a chocolate-covered factory. A first chocolate factory in Europe to manufactured chocolate-covered wafers, something like Kit Kat, only in the shape of little animals, rabbits, bears, with tinfoil on it. And every time my father would come home, us kids would search his pockets, and he made sure he had some goodies in there. So um, anyway, we lived in a beautiful building on a major thoroughfare in, in Krakow, Poland. And this is our apartment, the three windows that you see here on the left side of the, um, these three windows were part of our apartment. And, and uh, in fact, this one window was my bedroom. Um, on the other side of the gate, see two windows that's in other Jewish families that lived in the building. And one early in the morning, the whole building started to shake and rattle. So I ran to the window to see what's going on. And I saw tanks were rolling down the street. Following the tanks, tanks were half tracks and every few steps, the soldier would jump out of the half-track, get on the sidewalk with a rifle. And this is how they occupied the city. There was no fighting. And following them, there was the Gustav, the, the uh, Wehrmacht, the foot soldiers with their shiny black boots and their goose steps. It was quite impressionable for a 10 and a half year old kid at the time. That was my age. And as soon as they marched through, my father called us into the dining room, set us down on chairs and told us, okay, from this moment on, there are no more kids. You're all adult grown up, 
I don't want to hear any crying, any uh, uh, back talk. You're going to do exactly what you're told from this moment on. And sure enough, five days after occupation of Krakow, we found out what Nazi brutality was all about. A truck pulls up to the gate and they started to bang early in the morning and, and the super came running out. What, what's going on? All they wanted to know was where the Jewish people lived. And the super was quick to oblige. He said the lessers, us, lived on one side and this other Jewish couple lived on the other side. This other couple had two daughters. They were about my age, a little younger maybe than myself. But the mother gave birth to an infant little boy two months earlier. And they came breaking down the door, pistol whipping us. We were all in bed sleeping. They woke us up. In their hands, they had sex. And they were screaming, throw in all your valuables, money, gold, jewelry, whatever they can find. And they were beating us up at the same time. My, they were beating up my father to open up the safe. While my father is trying to open the safe, we hear a terrible screaming from our neighbor's apartment. My sister Lola and I ran out through the kitchen to the back door into their kitchen back door and we came into their apartment and this is what we saw. We saw this monster was holding the infant little boy by its legs. He was about two months old and screaming, make him shut up. The parents were screaming, our baby, our baby. The, children, the daughters were screaming. With a smirk on his face, you can see he was enjoying what he was doing, smiling. He smashes the baby's head into the doorpost, killing it instantly. It's a memory that won't leave me, that screaming baby in that sudden silence and what came out from his head. We jumped on this monster and everybody was being beaten up by the, his bodies. They came running on and they pulled us off. They beat us up with pistols and, and, and we beat us up and they told them, okay, Hans, let's come. They, packed all of the jewelry and stuff. They, they got together, they threw it in a sack and they threw the sack in the truck and they took off. This was the fifth day after occupation. From that point on, things started to get worse. Day after day, things were happening. New ordinances, there was a curfew Jewish people can no longer be on the street after seven at night. 
till seven in the morning. They had to be locked up in the houses. New ordinances, you had to, you couldn't travel anymore from one place to another. You had to wear a Star of David and one thing after another. The strange thing was that there were no judges, no juries against the Jewish people. If you disobeyed any of these orders, they simply shot you. And every morning you can find dead bodies all over the street that they killed just because they disobeyed or they may have forgotten to put on the Star of David or who knows what. They killed you right on the spot. There was no accountability. And, you, and then a new, or, and my father went to the business to wine and syrup. They had guards stationed and they chased him away, confiscated. He went to his, his chocolate factory the same way. They had guards stationed, they chased him away, confiscated. Imagine a man working all his life to build up a little business to, to support the family. And just like that, it's taken away from you. Just like that. A new ordinance came in that the Jewish people can no longer reside, live in Krakow. If you wanted to live in Krakow, you had to go inside the ghetto. They made a ghetto for the Jewish people. But they gave us a choice. If you don't want to go in the ghetto, then you can only live in a neighboring community outside Krakow. You cannot live in a big city. Well, I hope you know what a... Um, ghetto is and if you don't ask your teacher he'll tell you all about it it was a terrible place to live in while my father was preparing to go inside the ghetto his whole family numbering over a hundred were all preparing to go and they all went into the ghetto just about when my father is almost ready to go in Michael, a young man who fell in love with my sister Lola, came to my father. He says, Mr. Lesser, you know how I feel about Lola. Someday I'd love to marry her. But do me a favor, come into the same community where my family is going. My father gave him a choice to go into the ghetto or to the small community named Nepalomitsa. He chose to go to Nepalomitsa. And, and listen, dear, this was a miracle because all the people who went into the ghetto about a few months later, they gathered them up and they transported them to a camp called Belzec. 
Belzec was a a a camp where they killed people. Extermination camp. And the all people in the ghetto were slaughtered, were killed in Belzec. Now my father was ready to go into Belzec, but because Michael asked him to go to Nepalamitsa, it was a miracle that he did not go into. If he had gone into the ghetto, all of us would have been killed. So now in Nepalamitsa, my father is leaving Krakow and Michael, my future brother-in-law, helped us load and he hired a wagon with horse and buggy and a driver and he helped us load into this carriage, this, this wagon. While we're loading, we find out that my father has 1,000 American dollars that he saved up for a rainy day. That's so important to save up for a rainy day. And he took the 1,000 American dollars, that was a lot of money in those days, and he pasted it in a Jewish book, in a prayer book, and he put it in the sackful of books. We had two sacks full of these books, he put it in there. And we're now taking off to go to Nepalomitsa. On the way, we're being stopped. Halt! Two husky Nazis jump on the wagon, and all they wanted to know, do you have any Jewish books, literature, Jewish literature? And they saw two sacks full of books, so they picked them up and they heaved them on the side of the road. You see, all the people who did not go into the ghetto had to cross this road. And as they were crossing this road, they were confiscating their Jewish books. And they were going to have a bonfire after everybody left. So my sister Lola spoke a beautiful German. She's, she walks up to this monster and she says, look, my father is a writer. He wrote his autobiography. Let him keep this one book. And he looks at her. Maybe he likes the way she spoke a beautiful German. He says, okay. I'll give you five minutes if he can find it. Picture this. The whole family started to climb on a mountain of books, trying to find this one book with the money. We couldn't find it. They all look alike. Brown, let, brown or black, leather bound. You keep sliding down. He chased us away. After five minutes, my father has a family of six and not a penny to his name. Our family was really numbering seven, but my oldest sister 
Goldie was in Munkacs, Hungary. You see, my mother's side of the family comes from Hungary. So every year, my mother would take us kids to go to Hungary in the summer to be with her side of the family. In the winter, we would come back to Krakow and go to school. But this year, Goldie was there a little longer and the war broke out and she couldn't leave, which was good because Hungary is a free country. And we were in Poland, um, occupied by the Nazis. So my father arrives at this farmhouse that my sister Lola rent not my sister my sister's boyfriend rented for us this is the house uh, one apartment we lived and the other side the farmer an apple orchard farmer lived now between those two apartments in between there was a baking oven people would bake their own breads and and cakes and whatever so my father arrives penniless, not like he can get a job because Jewish people were not allowed to be hired. How is he going to feed the family? My future brother-in-law, Michael, heard that. So he went out and he brought my father a sack full of flour, a hundred pounds of flour, figuring my father would be able to bake breads to feed the family. When my father saw the flour, his face lit up. Instead of baking flour, bread for the family, he started to bake pretzels. Why pretzels? All you need for pretzels is flour, water, and salt. And those ingredients he had. So he was feeding pretzels Instead of, instead of making bread to the family, he made pretzels. And then he took the pretzels to the neighboring bars, taverns, and offered it for sale. It was a novelty. They started to buy the pretzels. Now he could afford to bake a bread for the, to, for the family. Before he knew it, before you knew it, he became a little baker in that community. I was 12 years old at the time. I helped him break, bake. To this day, I still remember how to bake certain things for the family. I do that for fun. It reminds me of my father how we baked together, and I was 12 years old. That lasted only about a year, and Lola and Michael got married. When they get married, this was the wedding party that came to the marriage. Now, out of all these people, in fact, there were more people, not everybody is in the picture, 
But of all the people, only three of us survived. Michael, Lola, and I. I am down here. Um, I and my little brother in the white suit, that's my little brother. My mother is leaning against my mother. Anyway, all these people were slaughtered by the Nazis. Only the three of us survived. This is the only picture they have of me from the age of 12. When Michael and Lola got married, they moved into a duplex. One side of the duplex was the owner of the duplex who happened to be the mayor of the community. And Michael and Lola lived in the other apartment. One side, the mayor comes in one night and he says, Michael and Lola, save yourselves. I heard the rumors that there is going to be a raid against the Jewish people, either tonight or tomorrow night. Well, Michael heard that he went out and he hired a wagon with the driver and in the middle of the night, dressed like farmers, he walked out of the house and we got on that wagon and the only place we can go was a city called Bochnia. Bochnia was a mid-sized city, but Bochnia had a ghetto. That meant we had to go inside the ghetto. Bochnia ghetto had a very bad reputation. What, what happened there? Every so often, two or three dump trucks would come inside the ghetto and they would go from house to house, pull out their children from their beds and throw them into these dump trucks. The parents were screaming for the children, the children screaming for the parents. And as they filled up two or three dump trucks full of children, they started to pull outside the ghetto. The parents were running behind these ghettos and screaming for their children. But these cultured people had machine guns at the end of each truck. As the parents were running behind these trucks, they would open fire with the machine guns and mow down the parents running behind these children. That resonated throughout Europe and everybody knew, stay away from Bochnia ghetto. But we had no choice. And it's a good thing we did leave Nepalomitsa because the night after there was a raid and they went from house to house and pulled out all the Jewish people and took them to the forest and they shot them. How do we know this? After the war, Lola and I, my sister Lola and I were the only survivors we went to, back to Nyepalomitsa to find out what happened to everybody. And they told us that the farmers who went to the forest to pick mushrooms and berries 
to sell in the market saw these trucks pull in the, the forest, they were hiding behind trees. And they saw the men were given shovels and they were asked to dig a ditch. And then everyone was shot into the ditch and covered up. They said that the ground was moving for three days afterwards. They didn't kill, care if they killed you or they wounded you, they buried you. So it's a good thing we left. That was really our second miracle. The first miracle was not going in the ghetto. And the second miracle was that the, 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 the mayor of that community warned us about that raid. So we were able to escape. And now we're in ghetto. Even though the ghetto had a very bad reputation, we had no choice. We went in. And inside the ghetto, uh, the driver unloaded us in the middle of the street. And we're sitting there when Michael, my brother-in-law now, sees his school buddy, a young man who he went to school with. And he's this young man, his name is, um, his name was um, Farber, I think, Farber, yes. He says, Michael, what are you doing here? So he's telling him what happened. And Farber happened to be a Jewish policeman inside the ghetto. You see, they had Jewish policemen. They were dressed like policemen. They had no weapons. They only had a baton, a baton hanging. That's all. And when he saw my, when, when he found out what happened to Michael, he says, okay, I'll find you a place to live. Those, those policemen only kept order inside the ghetto. That's all. They had no weapons. And he took Michael, Lola and his family to an apartment. Then he took my father, my mother, myself, my little brother to another apartment. In, in another room, that's all it was, just one room. And there were eight other people inside. So now we were 12 in one room. There were no beds. All we had was straw on the ground, blankets on top of the straw. There were blankets hanging from the ceiling, partitioning off every family separate. And, and, and this is how we lived there. It was terrible conditions. Broken down furniture, all they had is a table, boxes for chairs. It was broken, everything. But they had one piece of furniture that was very nice. It was an ornate piece of furniture where you hang your coats and jackets. This piece of furniture, you had your coats and jackets. I didn't pay attention to it. 
Now everybody inside the ghetto had to work. If you did not work, you did not receive any rations. I was working in a uniform factory. My job was to sew on buttons on uniforms. It was easy work, but it was 13 hours a day, very little food and very little sleep. This was going on for over a year. And then Farber's, that friendly policeman, goes to Michael's and he says, Michael, I heard rumors there's going to be a raid tonight. Save yourselves. Now, ever since those trucks would come into the ghetto and they would pull out the children from their beds, every house and every apartment had a hiding place. They called them bunkers. That's when we found out that our hiding place was this little, this furniture holder where you hang your coats and jackets. You see, you open up the door, you push the clothing apart. There was a hole in the wall and 12 of us could crawl in through that hole, stand on the other side between two walls. Lucky for us, the outside of the walls were connected but the roof, the ceiling was open. It was snowing. And the, you know, and the last person going through that piece of furniture had to close the, the, the doors behind him. He had to push the closing back. The back panel, he'd slide back. And we stood there all night long, shivering and shaking. And we heard shootings dogs barking, screaming all night long. Towards morning, it got quiet. When it got quiet, we dared to come out. And when we went out into the street, we couldn't believe what our eyes have seen. We saw dead people laying in the snow, people torn apart by dogs, a, a mother holding an infant little boy. It was unbelievable what we have seen. And there were people going around in push carts and picking up these bodies and pieces of bodies and putting it in the push carts and then taking them to the ghetto square and piling it up in the ghetto square with all these bodies. And then these cultured people could, would come with machine, with gasoline cans, and they would pour, pour gasoline over the bodies. And they started a human bonfire in Bochnia Ghetto Square. Imagine that. A human bonfire in Bochnia Ghetto Square. And I knew that my sister and her husband were supposed to hide in a doghouse. So we went there and we couldn't believe what we found out. We saw Lola, my sister, and we asked her, What happened? 
So she says, <clears throat> you say they were supposed to go into a doghouse. You, you pull the floor up from the doghouse. As you pull up the floor, there was a step ladder and seven people could hide inside. They had provisions, they had bedding and food for seven people. And as they were about to go in, an other Jewish policeman walks up to them with his mother and his sister. And he says to Michael, Michael, I know about your hiding place in this doghouse. And unless you take my mother and my sister along, I'm going to tell the authorities. Well, they had no choice. They were, there's only room for seven. Now they were nine. So Michael and Lola decided to walk away and so the others can go into the doghouse and hide. And while others went into the doghouse, they're walking the street and this friendly Jewish policeman sees them. He says, Michael, what are you doing? Why aren't you hiding someplace? He says, well, he tells them the story, what happened with this other policeman by the name of Morris Schiller. He says, don't worry, where my sister and her two children are hiding, there is room for you. Come with me. So he took us, he took Michael and Lola to a, to a leather factory. Above the factory, there was a there was a water tank. He says, my sister and her two children are inside the water tank. You climb up on the other side, there is a step ladder. Inside there is a rope, you can let yourself in. And towards the morning when the coast is clear, I'll give you a knock on the tank. That means we can come out. Lola's telling the story. When she comes, she lowered herself inside the tank. She sees the mother, his sister, is knee high in water. And the little girl is up to her waist in water. The mother is holding an infant little boy in his hand. And the boy is sleeping and she's shivering. And the little girl is shivering. It's ice cold. Lola picked up the, the little infant boy from the mother. Michael picked up the girl from the bottom and they stood there all night and shivering all, all, of, all of them were together, all five of them shivering. They heard all night long shootings, dogs barking, the same thing we heard. Towards morning it got quiet and they heard the knock on the tank that the coast is clear, they can come out. And after they came out and they put some circulation back into their feet, into their legs, the first thing they wanted to know is go to the doghouse and find out what happened to his family. When they came to the doghouse, this is what they saw. The whole family was laying in snow with bullet holes in their heads. Everyone was killed. Little, little Marika, his, his little sister, 
who was seven years old, and Lola made her a doll. She's still holding on to her doll. Anyway, Lola started to scream, and Michael stopped her. They can still hear you. Maybe they'll burn. They're still burning bodies there. And with a quelched cry, they knew what they had to do. You see, according to the Jewish religion, you're supposed to bury your loved ones within 12 or 24 hours, the latest. So Michael went out, he found a wheelbarrow, he put his family on there, little Marika still holding onto the doll hanging here, and Lola's holding onto them, and they're pushing them up to the cemetery. There was a Jewish cemetery, and they found a shovel, and they buried everybody. Now to tell you what happened from this moment on, it's a long story, and it would take me another hour um, to, to tell you how we were able to get outside the ghetto, and we took 55 people along with us, and we were now outside the ghetto. Outside the ghetto, that was a miracle, but it's so long of a story. If you have my book, you can read it in my book. Now we're outside the ghetto. Michael sees a truck driver who was hauling coal. And he says to him, if you can convert your truck into a double-decker, coal on top, between the coal and the chassis, there would be room for people to hide there. And if you could take us to the border, and there is a smuggler waiting for us. He's going to take us across the border to Czechoslovakia. Well, they, we paid him a lot of money. And he did. He agreed to do it. And he converted his truck. He had coal on top, material on the coal and the chassis. Ten people could hide just like sardines, five and five could hide there. And we were, we got into the truck. Well, Lola and Michael went first. Why did they go first? Because you couldn't always trust, trust the driver. He would take your money, then he could turn you into the Gestapo and get the ransom money for turning in Jewish people trying to escape. So we had made up a passcode. If the driver comes back with the right password, that means you can trust them. And sure enough, Michael and Lola went first with another eight people, 10 in the truck, and they left. The next two days later, the truck driver comes back with the right password. Now it was time for another 10 people to go in eight people from that family, and two that they paid for us, two from our family. And my mother and father insisted that I and my little brother Tuli go next. My oldest brother Moishi was in, they, they arrested him and they put him in a concentration camp. Now, my oldest sister Goldie, remember, is in Munkac in Czechoslovakia, Hungary. 
which is a free country. She, she was okay. Lola and Michael crossed the border. Now was our turn. And I remember going inside this truck, we laid down like sardines and we leave. Two hours after Bochniak, we're being stopped. Halt! And we look through the cracks. There are soldiers with rifles and they're talking to the driver. We can't hear because the roar of the engine was so loud. And all of a sudden, the truck started to move again. We felt maybe they're going to let us go. But when we look through the crack, we see that on the of each side of the truck, there's a soldier with a rifle standing. And now we hear soldiers on top of the coal walking. And the coal dust is coming to come through. And my little brother is about to sneeze and I'm holding his nose. Two hours like this, they're walking on top, and then the truck stops. We felt sure they took us to a cemetery, they're gonna shoot us now. And all of a sudden we hear, Dankeschön, Dankeschön, thank you, thank you. They're just hitchhiking. Imagine, they did, they're soldiers on top of the coal, and they didn't know there were 10 Jewish people hiding under the coal. And they were traveling with us for about three hours. That was another miracle. They did not discover us. They just hitchhiked. And they said, thank you, thank you, and they left. The driver took us to the forest about three kilometers away and he told us to get out. Now we're all coming out of the truck. I, and he says, walk up 300 yards, you'll see a tool shed. Inside the tool shed, there is the forest ranger who happened to be a smuggler. He's waiting for you. And we went there, it was already nighttime. And he, he, he was very happy to see us. And he took us to the deep forest. It was about 2.30, almost three o'clock in the morning, 3 a.m. Pitch black, you couldn't see your hands in front of you, it was so dark. And he tells us all to lay down on our stomach and look up, and we look up, we see soldiers are walking with their dogs back and forth on top of the hill. He says that at exactly a tree, they're gonna come down the mountain and they're gonna meet another bunch of fresh soldiers and they have a little ceremony and then the other soldiers will come up. But in between, them going down and the others coming up, there's about five or six minutes and we can cross the border. So at three o'clock, we started to shimmy our way up to the borderline. He picks up the barbed wire. He told us to cross and he told us that the other side of the wire, 
there's a big ravine you can fall unless you hold on to each other. If you tumble, it's all over. Sit down at the edge of the mountain and slide down, and you're going to hit a plateau soon. So we did that. We sat down holding our hands, and we slid down, and then we hit a plateau. I asked my little brother, are you okay? He says, yes. Pledge black, we can't see each other. He says, yes. Somebody punches me on my shoulder. I jump out. Who in the world out in the middle of nowhere and out here sees us even? He says, Bainish. No one called me Bainish except my immediate family. Otherwise, I was Benek or Bundy, Ben. He says, I'm your uncle Bela, your mother's brother. I came here to smuggle you across. How did you know out in the middle of the wilderness where to find me? He says, when your sister Lola went through two days ago, she contacted us and she told us exactly the spot that you'll come down. And I was waiting for you. Well, <clears throat> we were very happy. To tell you the story, what happens from this moment, we still had to cross another border from Czechoslovakia to Hungary. That's a story in itself, and it would take too long. So I'm gonna skip that story, only to tell you we finally arrived to Budapest, Hungary. In Budapest, Hungary, we meet Lola and Michael, and we embrace, we're very happy, we had a good meal, and then we had to go to a jail in order for us to become legal in Hungary, we had to go into a jail in Budapest first. And my uncle would sign as the guardian, since we were underage, the guardian for us. And then they let us out of the jail and we became legally in, in Hungary. We're legalized in Hungary as as the, but my uncle is our guardian. He took us to railroad station and we went to Munkaj. That's where my sister Goldie was, my oldest sister. That's where my grandparents, my uncles, my aunts, my cousins, all the people from my mother's side are all waiting for us. And we became, we embraced, I haven't seen my sister in years and be very happy. The people in Hungary didn't believe what we were telling him is happening to the Jewish people in Poland. But some of us believed us, the members of our family believed us, but they said, this will never happen in Hungary 
because Hungary is an ally of Germany, why would Germany siphon off soldiers from the front? They needed every front fighting. Why would they siphon off soldiers to occupy a friendly country like Hungary? It didn't make sense. It didn't really make sense. But my uncle believed me. I said, uncle, if the Nazis ever come in, all but you have are going to be taken away. He was a wealthy man. He had a store selling yardage goods for suits and dresses. Above the store, he had his house. And I told him, you know, if the Nazis ever come in, they'll take everything away. It would make a lot of sense if you converted some of your assets into diamonds, something that we can hide on our body. He listened to us. And one day he comes home with boxes full of shoes. He tells a pair of shoes for every member of the family. He tells us, no, that in the heels of the shoes, there are diamonds. Use it only in a life-threatening situation. If you can save your life, know you have diamonds in the shoes. Well, March of 1944, the Nazis marched in into Hungary like they were invited guests. They came in and they knew every Jewish person, our education, our businesses, our locations, our, our everything about us, he, they knew. How? How? They didn't have computers in those days. IBM had punch cards. They would sell these punch cards to anyone who would pay the price. IBM doesn't deny it, but they say they had no idea to what purpose they're going to use these, this information. And within two months, they were already shipping some of the Jewish people into death camps, just like that. Now, this is what they told us. Germany needs workers. Everybody will be relocated to Germany. Bring along all your valuables that you can carry with you, but leave everything else behind. And if anyone is found hiding, will be shot. Most people believed it. And they brought along all the bundles and they went to the railroad station. They marched us to the railroad station, lined us up 80 to cattle car. And while we were waiting to get in the cattle car, two men with a stretcher walk up and they put down the stretcher by my foot, and I take a look, a woman all bloody black and blue, and I take a good look, it's my sister Lola, Goldie. I says, Goldie, what happened to you? She says, I tried to escape. I went as far as the railroad station, 
and a Hungarian gendarme who went to school with me recognized me and he handed me over to the SS and they beat me to pulp. And they ordered us to go into these cattle cars, 82 cattle cars. It wouldn't be so bad if it were not for the fact that people had bundles, valises, and it got so tight that if somebody wanted to sit down, someone else had to stand up. Imagine, imagine 80 people in a cattle car. They locked the door and there were two buckets of water in the corner. Once the bucket, once the water was gone, there were no sanitary facilities, no toilets. Imagine 80 people, men, women, children, pregnant women, old people, infants, screaming, yelling, no food, no more water, and no place to, to eliminate. So they used those two buckets. And as they filled up these buckets, the, the human waste started to flush over outside the bucket and it would spill out on the floor. Now we were happy we had bundles to sit on instead of sitting in the waste on the floor, human waste. Three days of this. And on the third day, we, it was nighttime, the third night, we see a flash, a, a station, and it says Oshwinchim. Oshwinchim is Auschwitz for German. Oshwinchim, Polish, is Auschwitz. But who knew? We didn't know about an Auschwitz. We didn't know about Oshwinchim. The train did not stop there, but it moved on about a few hundred yards away, and it stopped. And then standing there, we see a gate, and on top of the gate it says, Arbeit macht frei, labor gives you freedom. This is the gate of Auschwitz. We didn't know that. We didn't know about Auschwitz. We didn't know about camps. We don't know any of this. And the train stood there for an hour, and then it moved on for another three kilometers, and it stopped. It stopped. That place was called Birkenau. Birkenau was part of Auschwitz. Birkenau was the place where most people were being slaughtered, killed, gassed. Anyway, and we arrive, they open up the door and they scream. Women, they scream, all your belongings, drop them. Don't pick anything up from the floor. Women and children to the right, men to the left. I'm holding on to my sister Goldie, my little brother Thule, and they're just ripped apart from me, never to see them again. My sister and two little brother went directly 
to the gas chambers. But who knew? Who knew? We were standing there, it was nighttime, and it was a strange place. We see barracks, but there was like the snow, ashes flying all over the place. And every time you make a step in the ashes, just like a footprint in the snow, a funny smell. And the man were telling us in front of us, he says, huh, those must be smelting factories. This is probably where we will be working. No one knew what it really was. No one knew. And I'm standing there and I, I, I see in front of me a doctor and he's pointing his finger right, left, right, left, right, left. That was Dr. Mengele. He was the angel of death. He decided, Mengele, he decided who shall live, who shall die with a flick of his finger, just a flick on a finger. He asked the young man, he says, comes to five kilometers laufen, can you run five kilometers or would you rather go by truck? He says he would rather go by truck because he has a bad knee. Poor soul not realizing that meant certain death. He sent them to the right, to the gas chambers. But who knew? We didn't know. A doctor is asking you a question. But it didn't make sense to me. I was 15 and a half years old. I wasn't a man and I wasn't a child either. I was just in between. But when I, but it didn't make sense because I see the barracks. Why would he ask such a question? I figured he's just testing us to see if we're strong enough to work. I tell my uncle, my cousin, I say, let me go first and, and you follow me. Whatever he asks you, tell him, yes, you can work. Yes, you can run anything, you're healthy. And let me go first. I was eight, 15 and a half and I go in front of this Dr. Mengele. I stretch myself out. And I, before he asked me, I said, 18 Jahre alt, gesund und arbeitsfähig. I'm 18 years old, I'm healthy, and I can work. So he says, comes to five kilometers laufen, can you run five kilometers? I said, jawohl, yes, I can. He sent me to the left. My uncle and cousin followed. Anyway, they took us to a big auditorium, just like a school auditorium. They told us to get on the rest, get out of your shoes, walk over to the line of barbers. They will cut your hair, then they'll send you to showers. Well, my uncle and my cousin, remember, 
they all had shoes on just like I with diamonds in it. But they were, we were being told to get out of our shoes. They got out of their shoes. They gave me the, those black shoes. I hated to get out of them. So I left my shoes on. And I walked over to these naked, no, naked, only all I had was a pair of black shoes on my, on my feet. I walk over, they cut my hair all over my body. They weren't exactly gentle the way they cut it either. And they didn't say anything about my shoes. There were guards going back and forth inside there. If they would have seen my shoes on, they would have shot me right on the spot. How dare I disobey their orders? They set everybody out of their clothes and out of their shoes. I got lucky and, and they sent me in the shower. I went in the shower with my shoes on. No one said anything. And there they gave me a disc with my number, 41212. That was my number 41212 instead of my name Ben Lesser. From that moment on I was 41212. And they gave me the striped clothes, they gave me a pair of shoes, wooden soles with canvas on top. I got into those shoes and I took my black shoes and I put it behind my jacket and behind my 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 arms and we walked out of the showers and they're taking us to our barracks. It was still nighttime and they line us up in front of the barrack. The commandant comes up, the, the Stuben Elteste, not the commandant, the Stuben Elteste. He was a man in an inmate who was in charge of the barrack. And he came out speaking a broken German. He says, ha! you Hungarian Jews, you think you're here on vacation? Think again. You see those chimneys, those ashes, those flames? Those are your mothers, your fathers, your brothers, and your sisters. And if you don't behave and do exactly what you're told, this is how you're going to wind up. Ashes. Well, I couldn't believe what he said. This is the 20th century. They're burning people. My sister, my little brother, ashes. I couldn't believe it. And they told us to go inside and take a bunk. So we took a bunk, my uncle and cousin and I on top, top bunk. We laid down and we fell asleep. We were so tired, we fell asleep. About an hour later, my cousin wakes me up. He says, Ben, get, get, get up, get up. I says, what? He says, listen. And I listen and I hear a chanting, a crying or a singing. I can't tell. And then he says, look. I see one side of the wall in the barrack had some boards missing. And I see an orange hue, like a flame shooting out. 
He says, what is it? I says, I don't know. But you know, the Stuben Elteste was a inmate, but he was Polish. I can tell in his accent. And I am Polish because I came with the Hungarians, but I'm Polish. So I went over there and I said to him, Przepraszam bardzo, excuse me, sir. Can you tell me what this, what I hear and what I see? He says, ha, you Hungarian Jews, you know nothing. You know nothing. Six months before Hungary was occupied, we knew that Hungary is going to be occupied because they made us dig ditches for the influx of the Hungarian Jews. They, they built a, another crematorium, another gas chamber for the influx of the Hungarian Jews. So, and then he was telling me things that I even didn't want to know. He was telling me how long it takes to kill a person in the gas chambers. He says it takes a half an hour. They didn't have time to give us a half an hour because the trains were piling up one after another. After 15 minutes, they made the Sonderkommando pull out the half dead bodies, cut their hair, pull out their gold teeth, and then put them on gurneys with rope around five people on a gurney, put, push him to the crematorium. That was too slow. Now they had dump trucks and they would take these half dead bodies, throw them into these dump trucks. And on top of them, they were laying down, throwing down infant little boys and girls. You see, they didn't have, they hadn't have time to kill the infants in the gas chamber. It takes up too much time. So the infants have no gold teeth. They have no hair. So they couldn't be bothered with them. They would take them away from the mothers going into the gas chamber, making the mothers lift up their hands so they can push in more people and then they would take these infants and throw them on top of the half dead bodies. And then they would take these trucks to these dump trucks, to these fiery pits, and they would throw in these people in the fiery pits. And this is what we heard day and night screaming because the fiery pit was one of the fiery pits was only one barrack away from the barracks that we slept in. And we heard the screaming all the time, all the time. What we went through in, in, in Auschwitz, I can't tell you because it would take another half hour, terrible things. But lucky for us about Two weeks later, they came with trucks and they pushed us into trucks and they took us to a labor camp. The labor camp was a rock quarry. As we dynamited the mountain and boulders were coming down, 
It was our job with sledgehammers to break these boulders into manageable pieces, throw them into mining carts, run it down the hill to a grinding machine to make gravel out of it. It was very, very hard work. I, I can't even explain how hard it was. I figured that my uncle will never survive this. He will never survive this work. So we had to push these cars back up the hill. <clears throat> I went to the chef, the kitchen chef from the camp. He was an inmate who slept in the same barrack and I bribed him with my diamonds. I gave him the diamonds from my shoes to give my uncle a job in the kitchen. He took the diamonds and he gave my uncle a job in the kitchen. It got a little easier on my uncle. He could eat in the kitchen and then his ration he could share with his son and me. So it got a little easier. Every day when we came back from work, we had to line up in the yard in rows of five. The kitchen help, all the people in the kitchen, the Jews had to come out and also line up and we were all counted. So every day after they counted you, they would dismiss you, you would go for your rations and then you would go into your, your barrack, okay? One day we came back, they counted and counted and counted. Then the commandant comes down with his Fräulein, his girlfriend. He comes down and he counts more. He says, ha, I'm gonna teach you Schweinhund a lesson you'll never forget. What happened? three inmates escaped and because of this he orders his henchmen to pull out every tenth person in line to receive 25 lashes and they took us in the middle of the yard they brought down bundles of hardwood stakes and and they brought down a sawhorse and this is what they had us do by the way, when they were pulling out every 10th person in line, I can see that my uncle is going to be 10 and I took his place. So I was number 10. And this is what they ordered us to do. Stand in front of the sawhorse, tiptoe. Your heels cannot touch the ground. Bend over, but your stomach cannot touch the two by four. And then one man would pull your trousers tight, and then other man would hit you with these hardwood stakes. And you had to count out loud, eins, zwei, drei. If you miscounted, you started from one again. If your heel touched the ground, you start from one again. If your stomach touches the two by four on that sawhorse, you start from one again. Well, the first man, I was number four in line. The first man went up 
And every time they hit him, you can see a line of blood coming through the trousers. They hit you so hard. He was screaming, eins, zwei, drei, vier. Finally, and then his heel touched the ground. Start again, eins, zwei, drei, vier. Finally, his stomach touches the two by four. Start again. And this was on and on and on. Finally, he fell. When he fell, the commandant walks over to him and kicks him in the face. Get up. He couldn't. The commandant pulls out the revolver and shoots him. He shoots him. They push him aside. His girlfriend walks over to him, gives him a hug and a kiss, like he just performed some kind of a heroic act. He killed a man. Number two went up the same way, miscounted. He touched the ground. They touched the two by four. It counts again, again and again. It louder. We don't hear you. Louder, louder. And then he falls. He falls. The commandant goes over, kicks him in the face. Get up. He couldn't. He pulls out the revolver and shoots him. We had two dead bodies now. Number three went up. Number three was a younger man, and he miscounted his touch again and again, and he yells out, please have mercy on me, do not kill me. So the commandant says then, stand up, come over here and face me. The poor guy stands up, makes five steps, and his knees gave out from under him. He fell. The minute he fell, the commandant goes over and shoots him. We had three dead bodies in front of me. Ben Lesser, I am next in line. All I remember is I walked up to that sawhorse, tiptoed, bent over without touching it, and I said to myself, Ben, if you want to live for another hour, you better do it exactly the way they tell you. No ifs or buts, exactly. I go over, one man is pulling my trousers, and they start to hit me, and I start to yell, eins, zwei, drei, vier, fünf. And blood is running down my trousers, and, uh, you know, I have to watch myself. My heels should not touch the ground, and I shouldn't touch the two-by-four. I had to stand in mid-air like this, and they're hitting me. Sieben, acht, neun, zehn. Finally, zwanzig, einundzwanzig, zweiundzwanzig, dreiundzwanzig, vierundzwanzig, fünfundzwanzig, twenty-five. I made it. No one could believe in the camps that anyone could survive this. You could hear a pin drop. The man who was hold, pulling my trousers tight says to me in Yiddish, go over and thank him. So I stand up, blood is running down my trousers, and I walk over to him, I salute him, and I say, Danke schön, Herr Commandant. Thank you very much, Herr Commandant.
When he hears it, he puts his hand on my shirt collar, twists me around, facing the number 10s who are still to be beaten. And he says, now I told you it could be done. If you do it like this, Junge, you have nothing to worry about. While this is going on, there is a commotion at the gate. You, they caught the three inmates and they were pulling them in. You couldn't recognize them, bloodied, black and blue. They were pulling them in. When the commandant saw that, just like a child gets sick of a toy and throws it away, he orders, his, he orders everybody to go back in their line, all the number 10s to go back in their line. He orders his henchmen to bring down a portable gallow. And we had to watch how they were hanging each one individually. I'll never forget the third man, they put the noose around me. He started to scream out, Shema Yisrael Adushem. He, this is a prayer, a Hebrew prayer. Six words before you die. And they, they heard that. They pushed, they pushed the stool out from under him. They wouldn't let him complete the last two words. Adonai Echad. God is the one. They wouldn't let him complete this. And then they dismissed us. We went for our rations like nothing ever happened. For weeks, I couldn't sleep on my back because of the welts. I had this big welts on my back, on my tush, all over. So I had to lay on my stomach. One night, we heard cannon fire. The front was closing in. That morning, we reported to go to work. There was a loudspeaker saying, no one is going to work today. The camp is being evacuating. Line up in rows of fives and march out. That was called a death march because if you could not keep up pace with the soldiers, they simply shot you. And my uncle was already in the kitchen. We couldn't say goodbye to him. We never saw, saw him again. We never saw him again. He didn't survive. I don't know what happened. And they're marching us out in the death march. It was so terrible. We marched day after day after day. At night, we, they put us in barns, barns to sleep. If you couldn't keep up pace with the soldiers, they shot you. And all day long, we heard shot, 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 people being shot all day long. One week, two weeks, three weeks, and I lost, uh, I don't know, I didn't lose conscience, but I, I was like a zombie. I didn't know day from night anymore. I lost the numbers of dates. Now, in my book, I wrote that I marched in that march three or four weeks. We had a German professor who read the book 
contact us and say, Mr. Lesser made a mistake. He marched seven weeks. There was 470 kilometers from Dernau to Buchenwald. Seven weeks was the death march. I don't know how I survived this. The last few days, our shoes fell apart. We were now marching in snow, and we had to keep up with the soldiers in their boots. We had to keep up with them. It was a miracle that I survived it, and I came to this camp. In this camp in Buchenwald, they counted us. They put us, told us to go into the barrack. They're going to feed you. You can take a shower and you, you sleep there, they're going to give you fresh clothes. This picture is in the shower in, in Buchenwald. Somehow it's a whole long whole story how this picture was found. Anyway, but tomorrow morning they ordered us to come back in line there because Buchenwald is also being evacuated. So the next day this is what we did. We came out, we lined up five in a row. They counted us and they marched us out. And as they were marching us out, we see a bunch of cattle cars. They line us up 80 to a cattle car. I tell, tell my cousin and I pushed him up. I says, find a spot next to a wall so we can rest our back against the wall instead of being in the middle because I remember going to Auschwitz in the middle, people all around you, it was terrible. So sure enough, he found a good spot against the wall and he saved the spot for me. I came in, they filled up the wagon, they closed the door. An hour later, they opened up and they threw in 80 breads, a bread for each person. Well, Picture this, those people who were in front of the door were grabbing four or five breads. And I was against the wall with my cousin. We had nothing, we had nothing. Please help, somebody came in here. I, I Help me here, bring a towel. I'm sorry, I, I, am, I dropped a can of water. It's bad. All of this. Forgive me. Accidents happen. It's okay. While it's being cleaned up, you could continue your story. But take your time, Ben. All right. <clears throat> I don't know what happened here. Okay, um, somehow I knew I have to get a bread. So I started to climb over the sitting inmates and I came over and, and one of the inmates had a pocket knife. He stabbed me. He didn't like the ideas that I climbed on his head. He stabbed me and I felt blood inside of my mouth, but I couldn't stop. I had to get a bread. 
So finally, I found this man with a bunch of breads in his hand. I pulled the bread out from him. He punches me. And I go back, I put the bread in my pocket, I go back to my cousin. And my cousin says, Ben, what's happening to you bleeding? I put my finger here and it goes right through my tongue. I had a big hole. I don't know, it was a miracle that we survived this. I, I took part of my trousers and I made, bandaged my head and we were there one week, two week, and I had this one bread and I would ration it out between my cousin and I the size of a half an egg every night when no one can see us. Because if they knew we had bread, they would kill us for it. One week, two weeks. After two weeks, there was no more bread left. The train is still shuttling back and forth. Another week. And after three weeks, we arrive at a place called Dachau. Dachau is a concentration camp. They opened the door and they said, anyone who can walk out, walk out into the camp of Dacha over the tracks. And I, out of the 80 people in our cattle car, only about four of us walked out. The rest were all dead. Everybody was laying dead. And we pushed the bodies off of us and we climbed out and we, my cousin and I, this was the cattle car we were in. Remember, there were 7,000 people in this train. Seven, imagine 7,000 people. And we came to Dachau and only 18 people walked out alive out of the 7,000 everybody dead no water no food even those people who had two or three breads died because they didn't have enough water to digest it so died they died seven thousand almost everybody dead only 18 of us walked out and i and my cousin holding each other we go into the camp and we see another mountain of full of bodies. Their crematorium ran out of coal. So now they were not able to burn the bodies so they piled up all these skeletons on top of each other. And they put me and my cousin right next door to all these bodies in the barrack on the floor we lay there one day two day three days and suddenly we hear bafraim liberation americans americans i tell my cousin let's go out and see what's going on and holding each other we walk out there and we see GIs and we see the inmates are crawling on their hands and knees and they're kissing the boots from the GIs and the GIs don't know what to do with us and they looked like angels to us they they liberated us 
So two GIs walk up to me and to my cousin, and they were holding a can of Spam. They open up the can of Spam. It smelled so good. And they offered it to us. We made a mistake. We ate a little bit of it. As soon as we ate it, we got sick. We got very sick. That night of liberation, my cousin dies in my arm. He could not take it, and he dies. And I talked to him. I wouldn't let him go. But they saw this. They came and took him away. And they took him away. So I followed. My knees gave out, and I fell. When I fell, they pushed me to a wall. And I stayed there for two hours. A man walks up to me, nicely dressed. And he speaks to me in a broken German. What languages do I speak? And I tell him all the languages. I spoke seven languages. He says, Polish? I'm from Poland. I'm a Polish Jesuit priest. And I came here with nuns and with nurses and doctors. And we're opening up a field hospital in the camp of Dachau. And I'm going to take you, me, into the, the hospital. He says, I'm going to pick you up. And he picked me up like a sack of bones. I only weighed 60 pounds. And I was 16 years old at that time. Five and a half years I went through hell on earth. And now he picks me up and he takes me into the infirmary, but he tells me something on the way. He says, Benek, what they did to you is so unjust. The only crime you committed is you were born Jewish. How unfair is that? However, he says, don't you ever abandon your noble religion. To hear that from a Jesuit priest in 1945, was almost unheard of. You may hear it today. And he took me into the infirmary. There was a nun waiting for me. They put me on a cot with a white sheet on it. And they took my vitals. And I pass out. Two and a half months later, I wake up in a monastery in Bavaria, Santa Tillian monastery in Bavaria. The monks gave up one building to make it into a hospital to rehabilitate the, the, the camp survivors. So we, we were there. So two and a half months, I was in coma. Then I woke up. You could actually say it's another miracle. I was born. I was born in Santa Tillian in this monastery. Now, my dear friends, to tell you what happened from this moment on, I knew I had to fight to, for our own country, so we should have the land from where we were dispersed 2,000 years ago from Judea by the Romans. 
and we were dispersed all over the world. So I became a chalutz, a, a um, fighter, and I was chosen to go to Palestine. The 10 of us were chosen to go to Palestine. And this young lady, with I had my arm on top of her, fell sick the night that we were leaving, she became sick. So they took her by ambulance to the hospital in Santa Tillian. And I told my, my friend, I says, I have to go and, and tell Rachel uh, goodbye and, and assure her that once we are well and she gets well, we will come and pick her up. Don't worry, we are not going to uh, leave you alone here. Um, so we went to Santo Tillian. It wasn't so easy. We had to take buses. We arrived there and we go into this um, uh, hospital uh, ward. And uh, there were several women in that ward. I didn't pay attention. Rachel was in one bed and I sat down on Rachel's bed and I was talking to her. My friend was sitting on a chair. We were both talking to her. I didn't pay attention to any of these women, but this woman, one woman was paying attention to me. And after two hours when I left, she says to Rachel, who was this young man sitting on your bed? He had the wavy black hair. He reminded me so much of my brothers. Who is he? She says, oh, his name is Benjamin. Ben Benjamin. Benjamin? I had a brother by the name of Ben or Benek. Do you happen to have a picture of him? And she says, yes, I have the picture of the 10 of us who were chosen to leave to go to Palestine. Can I see it? And Rachel hands her the picture. She screams out, that's my brother, my brother, he's alive, he's alive. He was right here for two hours, my brother is alive. Wasn't that a great miracle? Imagine millions of people in the world. I wind up in the same room for two hours next to my sister, neither one of us knowing the other one of us is alive. That was a miracle. And what happened from this point, they had to find me. I was on my way to Palestine and they had to bring me back. And, uh, and I came back in the same room and Rachel is still there. My sister is still there. And, I, I, and my sister sent a messenger saying that she's dying and her dying wishes to see her brother. So I had to leave this group going to Palestine because my sister is dying, her dying wishes to see me. So I went back and I embraced my sister and I see she's got a stomach and I says, Lola, what's, what's going on? So she started to laugh. She says, I'm pregnant and I expect a baby any day now. Are you all right? She says, yes, yes, I'm fine. I just had to tell you that I'm dying and my dying wishes to see my brother. 
because I knew you, uh, you wouldn't come back otherwise. And she was right. But my whole life changed. My whole life changed. My sister had a little uh, boy, uh, my, my, my nephew and my brother-in-law. Here I am and the nurse behind us. And our whole life began. Now we were already four of us. My little nephew, my sister, my brother-in-law and I, four of us starting a new family. And thanks God, what can I tell you? I have a beautiful, I had a beautiful wife, my wife of 72 years, the love of my life. She died about a month, month and a half ago. Um, we had a wonderful life. There she is, my family. And, and now there are two more great-grandchildren. I have four great-grandchildren. Uh, I have five great-grandchildren now. And I have, I, yes, and I have four grandchildren. This is my sister, Lola, her two sons, and, and his, her daughter, her daughter next to her. Those are families that they produce. And, and, and Ken Yorba, from this point on, our families are growing, thanks God, to spite, to spite Hitler. We are alive and we are multiplying. And I have to thank God. God for it because it was in God's will, in God's hand. But my dear friends, you heard a lot of about my story. From this point on, coming to America, I made a beautiful life for myself and my family. Coming to America without education, because my education stopped at age nine, or, or, I'm sorry, 10 at age 10, sixth grade. Coming to America without a language, without education, without money, practically no family, only my sister and my, my brother-in-law. What can I tell you? I made a beautiful life for ourselves. And I'm showing in my book how I did it. It wasn't easy, but I did it. And every one of you can do it, can make a success in your life if you follow my rules. My rules are all in my book. Yeah, we will, uh, guys, if you have any questions, you don't need to put your hand up. You can just message the questions in the chat and um, <clears throat> we will call on you and try and uh, get to everyone that we can. Uh, so um, again, you don't need to put your hands up. You can just message them in the chat. Uh, one of our first questions comes to us. Uh, a student is wanting to know, uh, what kind of advice do you have for students when it comes to overcoming a traumatic experience? All right, I'll tell you. While individuals can't always choose what happens to us, 
but whether it's a crisis or a calamity, people can choose to either let it ruin their lives or learn from it and move forward. It's essential to understand the consequences of personal choices. It's possible to let tragedy or trauma become a reason to stop living, but it's also possible to live through extreme circumstances and commit to a life that has meaning, a life that matters. I hope I answered the question. Absolutely. And um, while we have you here, can you talk a little bit about your I Shout Out organization for the kids? Yes. When you shout out on our, our organization, my daughter is going to show you pictures. You can shout out for peace. You can shout out for tolerance against hatred against anti-Semitism, anything that you shout out is going to remain on the shout out for generations to come. And if you wish to put your pictures on it, just with your shout out, your shout out and your picture is going to come out. Imagine your great, great grandchildren will be able to punch in your name and your shout out is going to come out with a picture of you. How important is that? That's the only one in the whole world that has this. And we have other things that our foundation has started. We have, we have many things. And I think I let my daughter explain to you. Gail? Hi, um, I'm Gail, Ben's daughter. And I am considered second generation. And as second generation, it's my responsibility uh, to be able to carry on my father's story, whether I carry it on myself personally, or which I will be doing for years to come. Uh, and also my children will be carrying on uh, their grandfather's story. So generations, uh, our future generations will always be able to know that they met a descendant of a survivor. There was a Holocaust. Here we have proof that Ben is a survivor. I'll tell you, as a kid growing up, I'm now in my mid-60s. As a kid growing up, I remember seeing the scars on my father's back. Oh, sorry. I remember seeing the scars on my father's back. And um, I remember hearing him scream out in the middle of the night with, um, with having, from having nightmares of my mother consoling him and may, trying to make him feel good. And I know, even though I don't live with him anymore, I know that dad still has nightmares at night, especially when he does speaking events late in the day and it's closer to the, uh, to the evening. But for you teachers out there, I'd like to invite you to visit our, um, our curriculum. We have zahorlearn.org. We have a fantastic curriculum. Everything is free. And um, I invite you to come through and put together uh, programs for your, uh, for your students, tell other teachers about it. Ben Lesser is a Holocaust survivor. He's an individual that put together this kind of program to be able to make sure that the generations of the future get to learn about him 
and his story. I uh, would also wanna tell you about the I Shout Out Please, students, it would mean so much to Ben if you went online and shouted out and then shared it with your friends. Go to Facebook. If you're on Facebook or whatever platform you might be doing, share it with your friends. Have them shout out too. Uh, we really need to get those six million shout outs and from students around the world. Can you imagine what kind of impact that will be? Uh, that's really it. You know, if you're interested in Ben's book, come. The whole, oh, AI, artificial intelligence. We call it StoryFile. If you get a chance, please take a look on Ben's, excuse me, if you get a chance, please take a look on Ben's StoryFile. It says AI, it's on our website on the ZahorFoundation.org. And on that website, you will um, be able to ask Ben any questions you want, and he will personally answer them for generations to come. Uh, it's a wonderful, it's the latest technology there is out there, and, uh, and we're offering it for free to students and teachers and history buffs around the world. You, you can, can I also say something? You yes. can also, you can also, take me home and your telephone to your house and ask me questions and I'll right. answer it. Right. The AI, you could pull it up on any computer, on your cell phone. Just check it out on our website. It takes two seconds. We do need your uh, email information or your, um, and we don't share it with anybody. It just stays within our organization. So you don't have to worry about that. Yeah, and you guys will be able to access that. I've shared the ZahorLearn.org in the chat, as well as the Horror Foundation and I shout out. So definitely check that out in the chat. Save those uh, in your links or your bookmarks. Um, is it okay if we go with a few more student questions before we let Ben go? Absolutely. Okay, so one of our friends, his name is Pedro, and Pedro is in South America, and he just wanted uh, to send you a quick message. Pedro, you should be able to unmute to uh, send your message. Yes, thank you. Well, Mr. Lesser, I'd like to thank you very much for giving us this speech. And I'd like to pay my respect to for living over one of humanity's darkest moments. I wish you the best. Thank you, Pedro. That's nice of you. Thank you. So we will go with uh, just a couple more questions and we'll, we'll let you go. This is coming from Sophia. And Sophia is also in South America. Sophia, you had a very good question. You should be able to unmute uh, to ask your question whenever you get a second. Oh, thank you. Uh, hi, Mr. Mr. Weiser. Um, I really appreciate, I really loved your presentation. And my question was, um, well, I stayed in a German school here in Brazil, so I, I know it's hard to learn a new language from zero. So how was to you uh, to learn a new language when you arrived in a new country, when you come back, came back? How was I able to learn to write language in German? How, how, you were, how were you able to learn English uh, or learn all these different languages with all your travels? Okay, you know, if you live in those places uh, in Europe, um, at, at age nine, I already spoke 
five, uh, four or five languages. And, and I was fluent in three. Uh, yeah, three. And then it was four and then was five. It's easy because you're there and you mingle with people. And you especially I was traveling from one country and under. I lived in Munkac with my grandparents and that was Hungary. So I had to speak Hungarian. And, and before Hungary, that area was Czechoslovakia, so I had to speak Czech. And, and I was born in Poland, I had to speak Polish. And we're Jewish, I had to speak Yiddish. And I also learned Hebrew, um, uh, biblical language. So those languages, um, in, in German, my mother insisted that everybody in the family should learn German. German was the language of the elite before the war broke out. You can go anywhere in Europe and speak German and they will know, they will understand you. So we had to learn German. So we already had all these languages. When I came to America, I didn't know a single word. All, I think all I knew is, is uh, 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 hello or something, nothing, nothing, nothing. But, you know, you, you have no choice. You have to learn it. I went to school to catch up in some of my studies. So I learned English. And I don't know how good I am. I'm not perfect in English, but I'm pretty good. I'm and you're, good. you're perfect in English. Yeah. You are absolutely perfect. You speak better English than me, and I was born here. So <laughs> uh, we have a couple more questions, then we'll let you go. This is Isabella, and Isabella is in Peru. You had a really good question. Go ahead and unmute to ask your question, my friend. Hello. Uh, hello. Mr. Lesser, um, yeah, well, my question is, uh, how was your life after you were free? And how could you live your life even after all the trauma? Can you explain it? That, that she wants to know, um, what was your life like after being freed? And how did you overcome the trauma? Uh, after being freed, I felt like I was newly reborn. Remember, I was in coma for two and a half months. And when I woke up, I was just like a newborn child. Uh, I was very happy to be alive. And I made friends and I, I, I was newly born, but I wasn't a baby anymore. I had to grow up and I had to learn everything. So I learned, and of course, I knew German fairly good. So I was able to get along in German. And then English, I didn't know. But ben, I spoke, yeah. If I could ask the question, when you were in recovery after waking up in Santatillion, how did they, um, did they, did they have any programs to help reacclimate you into society? Did you, uh, did they have classes or, or did you have to leave Santatillion and join a community? 
How did, how was that taken care of? They did have some classes, but um, very minimal. You know, they, the classes were just trying to tell you what happened. It was mostly history classes, but that's about all. But when I joined the Chalutzim, the pioneers going to Palestine, that's when I learned Hebrew real good, fairly good at the time. And, um, and I spoke all these languages. I became a little teacher, <laughs> the younger kids. So anyway, um, no, they didn't teach us much. They didn't teach us. They concentrated on getting you well. That's it. Well, I, I think it's in Hebrew. It's Tudabrat. Is that? Yes. Uh, thank you. Thank you in Hebrew. So uh, um, no, not it's Tudar uh, so it's doing me a mitzvah. Uh, so uh, we have two more questions, and this is Francisco, and Francisco is in Argentina. Yes. You had a very good question about Ben's story that was very specific. Go ahead and ask. Hi, Ben. Thank you for all the information given, and I appreciate it all. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, after the first ghetto you and your family were sent, how was the city called Michael helped you go? What did they call the city that Michael helped you guys get to in, I believe, Hungary? Oh, that was Munkac, Munkac or Munkacebo. It's now, I think, called Munkacebo. It's part of the Ukraine now. It used to be Hungary. First it was Czechoslovakia, then Hungary, now it's Ukraine. Czech, it's called Munkacevo. Munkacevo. And, and if you guys are further interested in his story, we have links in there um, that can uh, you can find Ben's timeline to his story. That's very interactive, as well as the, um, the AI that Gail had mentioned before. So before we let you go, Ben, is there any advice, the last question will be for me, is there any advice that you can give to these students as they go off into the world and figure out what they wanna do, what kind of advice would you have for them as someone who lived an incredible life? The advice I can give you is do the best you can in your life. If you have a job, be the best in that job. Not just good, but the best. Don't ever be a clock watcher. Oh, it's time to go home. No. When it's time to go home, you ask your boss, is there anything else you can do to help out? That's very poignant. He'll enjoy that. He'll enjoy that. And you'll see it will pay off in time. And And... Remember one more thing. When you go home today, give your parents a hug and a kiss. And your siblings, your brothers and sisters, your, your mother's fathers, your grandparents, appreciate them. Don't take them for granted. Appreciate them. We're here only in borrowed time. 
I'm going to interrupt real quick. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, you, you are our next leaders of the world. You know, um, you students that are listening here today, you have the foot, big, some big footsteps to follow in and changes to make in this, in this world. And it's up to you to, um, to choose to do the right thing or to choose to do the wrong thing. Choose love, choose love over hate. Oh, that's one other thing. When you're on our website, we have uh, a, a section in there for some music that Ben helped inspire by BMG Music. Uh, songwriters, Grammy writers from all around the world and singers put together some of these songs and they're really spectacular. Share those with your friends also. But if the future's in your hands and you can make the changes, you are the power for this ever-changing world. So when you ask for those songs, ask for Ben's, Ben's songs, Ben Lesser. <laughs> ben sorry, Lesser's ben music. Lesser's, not music, Ben Lesser's songs. Ben Lesser music, there's somebody else. Oh. <laughs> um, I, all I can tell you is this, this is very important. Hitler and the Nazis did not start with killing. It all started with hate. Hate, propaganda, this is how it began. Hatred has to stop. Those were ordinary people in Germany. Fathers, mothers, ordinary people. And Hitler's hate was able to penetrate into them and they became monsters. They were not born that way. They became monsters and they started to kill. Six million of us they killed. A million and a half of whom were children. And the world was silent. No one cared. No one cared. So the hatred has to stop. There's no reason to hate. So like my daughter said, choose love instead of hatred. And if you see, I believe a lot of this hatred begins at the home, at the table. Some of you kids hear things from your parents or from other people that are no good. Maybe you will correct them. It's all right to say, oh, what you're saying is not nice, daddy or uncle. That's not very nice to say. We're all human beings. And we have equal rights. Equal rights. God created us. And every person has the same right to exist. Why can't we live side by side and appreciate our differences rather than hate them? We're all a little different. We all have different theology. We have different languages. Or we're all part of humanity. Remember that. And it doesn't ma matter. 
doesn't matter black or white or 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 or, or you're a Democrat or Republican or it doesn't matter. You are a human being. Respect, respect each other. Can't thank you enough, Ben. This was absolutely wonderful. And thank you, Gail. Um, and thank you to all the students. I know it's late where some of you guys are at, and we hope that you guys enjoyed tonight's presentation. And we'll be setting out the recording uh, in the next week. So before I let you go, Ben, before I end this meeting for all, I'm going to give all, all of you guys the opportunity to unmute yourself and say thank you to Ben for spending time with us tonight. Uh, so he can hear you guys say thank you, and then I'll end the meeting for all. So can we all say thank you to Ben? Thank you, Ben. Thank you. 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 Thank you.